0: Father, that's before us, we will see you reveal yourself to Abram and change his name and reiterate your promises and give to him your covenant. And then, Lord, we will see you make a demand on him that is shocking and surprising, a demand that he complies with without question, without hesitation. And our, fa- our prayer this morning, Father, is that you would reveal yourself to us and cause us to know your promises and then make upon us, Lord, whatever demand you like and enable us to comply immediately, without question, without objection, without hesitation. We ask it in Christ's name, amen. I would invite you to open this morning to Genesis chapter 17, and we'll look at the entirety of this chapter together, Genesis uh, chapter 17. And as I begin, It's my, I I started to ask my wife and daughter to slip out because um, I'm going to say some things about them that might make them uncomfortable. Uh, It's my delight uh, to tell you that I owe my uh, opening introduction this morning to my wife, who is my most important counselor. Uh, She's the godliest person I know. Nobody has influenced her more than she, nobody has influenced me more than she has. And, um, uh, you might be thinking, hey, wait a minute, last week Abraham got in trouble because he listened to the voice of his wife. And I would say, yeah, in Genesis 16, Sarah tells Abram to go sleep with another woman. I mean, come on, of course he's not supposed to listen to her say that. And you might say, well, Adam got in trouble for listening to the voice. Uh, yeah, she counseled him to d- transgress an express prohibition of God. Of course she's, he's not supposed to listen to her then. But if she's counseling you something wise and good and holy, and righteous. Absolutely, you should listen. Okay? So, my wife is a godly and good counselor, and she counseled me to think about the way that um, I respond to our daughter. And um, so, I want to tell you about something that happened this week in our family that was tragic and devastating, mainly felt by Evie. Um, we, We got to go to uh, the Alabama coast not long ago and we brought back a hermit crab and our daughter uh, particularly loves animals and the other morning we got up and the hermit crab was unresponsive and there was no there was no resuscitating the hermit crab the hermit crab was dead and um, it, was, it was most devastating to my precious child and um, everything in me responded wanting to comfort her, wanting to hold her. I mean, there were some people in the house that might have been making fun of her. Not me. I wanted to hold her. I wanted to 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 tenderly and lovingly do anything that I could to comfort her. And the reason I think that this is an appropriate illustration is because, look, our church has been through a lot. And the whole, the whole country has been through a lot. It's been a difficult couple of months. And I suspect that Uh, that for some of us, it feels like there's been a death. And um, I want to respond. I'm not saying that you'll perceive it that way, but my desire is to respond by uh, doing what I did with my daughter when I took her onto my lap and I loved her. And, And then after a few moments, I began to speak to her and say to her, Evie, God hates death. And God sent the Lord Jesus to triumph over death. And if death makes you sad then you should hate sin because sin is death is in the world because because of sin and God sent Christ to overcome sin and death and we need to hope in Christ and we need to hope in the resurrection from the dead that's where our confidence is and so I hope that as we look at this passage today I hope that you'll perceive me as a loving father who says look I know that we've been through a lot but God is awesome. God is going to raise the dead. God has this incredible power that's going to overcome everything wrong and make all things new and give life, and and it's going to be wonderful, and our hope is in him. And we're looking for the kingdom that is to come when the dead are raised. So as we look at this, we're going to see that this passage, here's what I'm going to try to do. I'm going to try to go through Genesis 17 expeditiously try. You know, I I tend to get hung up in details and get excited about things, but we'll try to move through the passage relatively quickly. And then I want to circle back and think about um, things like the relationship between circumcision and baptism and things like the relationship between what God calls Abram to do and what God calls us to do. Okay. So so that's the plan. We're going to try to move through the passage quickly, and then we'll think about circumcision and baptism together, and then hopefully uh, the commands that God gives to us in the new covenant. So Genesis 17 falls into five parts, and uh, the opening and the closing match, and then the second part and the second to last part match, and then there's a middle part that I think is at the center of everything. Um, so there's a, a like a mirrored paneled structure to this uh, chapter. It begins in verses 1 through 3. Look with me there, if you will. Genesis 17:1. When Abram was 99 years old, and you may remember from chapter 12 that when he first gets summoned to go to the land of promise, in, in chapter 12, verse 4, he's 75 years old. And at that time, God told Abram, I'm going to make you into a great nation, and I'm going to give you seed, and I'm going to give you this land. He's 75. Now he's 99. 24 years have gone by. And he still doesn't have seed. I mean, he had, he had Ishmael, but the Lord basically said through Hagar, that's not what we're looking for. That's not the right way. And he still doesn't have the land. 24 years this man has been waiting. And, and I submit to you that we need to have happen in our hearts what happened to Abram's heart. What happened to Abram's heart when the years kept rolling by and the promise kept not being realized, was not skepticism and suspicion and accusation. No, what happened was, I trust this God. This God has made these statements to me, and I believe he's going to do it. I'm still waiting on him to do it, but I think he deserves the benefit of the doubt. 24 years have gone by. And look what happens. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram. Now that would be something, wouldn't it? Uh, I hope hope you appreciate the gravity of this. The, The God of the universe, the creator, is surrendering his right to privacy and disclosing himself. He appeared to Abram. Abram doesn't summon him. Abram doesn't, I mean, the passage doesn't say, Abram called out to the Lord. God graciously, mercifully, out of his own free goodness, lovingly reveals himself to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. That would be something, wouldn't it? For God to reveal himself to you and announce his identity. And Abram has had this experience before. Back in 157, The Lord says to him, I am Yahweh, who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans. So this is what's convincing Abram to continue in faith. The experience of God. Brothers and sisters, if we're going to continue in the faith, this is the only thing that's going to keep us. The experience of God. If you don't continue to experience God, you will not continue in the faith. If if the spirit of the age and Twitter and Facebook are discipling you, you will not persevere to the end. You will not grow in holiness. You will not form a Christian worldview. You will not cultivate Christian virtue. And you will not think think Christian thoughts. And you will not say Christian words. The only way those things are going to come is if you are experiencing the revelation of the living God that comes to us through the word by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the only way it's going to happen. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said to him, I am God Almighty. So there's this gracious revelation. And now here's the beginning of the demand. God's going to make himself known, make himself present. And as the passage continues, he's going to give Abram a restatement of his promises. And he's going to start making demands upon Abram. Here's the first of the demands. Walk before me. What does that mean? That means that Abram is to be conscious of the fact that wherever he goes, he is before God. If he is alone in a tent somewhere, if he is out in the darkness in the wilderness somewhere, if he's with his family, he is before God and God wants him to live like it. And if we all pause and think, if I was, if I was a priest of Israel and I was to enter the holy place, or maybe if I was the high priest and it was the day of atonement, and I was to enter into the holy of holies, how would I conduct myself? I think you would conduct yourself with, if you wanted to stay alive, right, because that's the warning. If you do the wrong thing in that circumstance, you die. That's what Leviticus and Numbers say over and over again. He's got to do this and that and this way, lest he die. If you want to stay alive, you conduct yourself in a way that's fitting for a priest. And that, that kind of language, fitting for a priest, that comes into the New Testament, as, as, and it gets translated reverence. You, you conduct yourself with reverence. And we're all over the place in the New Testament called to live in reverence. This is what Abram's being called. Walk before me, and then he goes on, and be blameless. You could translate this, have integrity. Have integrity. Be aware of my presence and walk in integrity. And then here come promises, verse two, that I may make my covenant between me and you. This whole passage, the covenant, is going to come up over and over again. We'll spend a lot of time thinking about this in this chapter. That I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. You'll remember this language from Genesis 1. God blesses Adam and says to him, be fruitful and multiply. And then uh, God blesses Noah and says to him, be fruitful and multiply. And now God is saying to Abram, I'm going to multiply you. But in order for me to do that, you've got to know me. You've got to walk before me and be blameless and I will multiply you. And the way that Abram responds, I think, is the way we would all respond because it's the way that everybody across the Bible responds when they experience God. Verse 3, Abram fell on his face. It's as though when a human being with with our limited bandwidth, when we get exposed to the living God, it's as though it's too much. And and all the sensory capacities begin to short circuit and people just collapse on their face before God. Because He's he's too big, he's too awesome, he's too overwhelming. That's who God is. He's infinite. And then God begins to speak to Abram in verse 3. And um, I want to draw your attention here to the way that, if, if you look at, at the end of verse 3 here, it says, and God said to him. And then if you drop your eyes down to verse 9, it says, and God said to Abraham. And then if you drop your eyes down to verse 15, it says, and God said to Abraham. And then if you drop your eyes down to verse 22, when he had finished talking with him, those statements beginning with this one at the end of verse 3, and God said to him, those statements mark the sections of this passage. So the first three verses are the first section. And now in verses 4 through 8, this is the beginning of what God is going to say to Abraham. And what God is going to do here is He's going to reiterate, restate His impossible promises. God, The promises that God makes to Abraham, Abram, at this point, are impossible. So look at verse 4. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Uh, God, I can't be the father of a single child because my wife is barren, and you don't count Ishmael. And God says, I'm going to make Abram a promise that in human terms is physically impossible. I'm going to make a promise that you cannot realize in your own strength, in your own abilities. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Verse 5, no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. And there's a wordplay in Hebrew. uh, uh, Avram means something like great father, and God insults God inserts a ham in there, and that ham part picks up on a Hebrew term that means something like, um, uh, it, it can mean like crowds and hordes of people or something like this. So you're, gonna, you're not merely going to be a, a, an exalted father, you're going to be an exalted father of multitudes, of hordes. So he changes his name. It's an act of divine sovereignty. This is, this is like the creator saying, let there be light and then God called the light day. This is what he's doing. He's saying, "Abram, I'm going to speak a word into your life that is a creative word. It's a it's a word that's that's making things happen, and then I'm going to name it. Your name shall be Abraham for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations." You see that? I have It's as though it's already done. Abram's got one son at this point. His name is Ishmael. And, and Sarah's still barren. And God is talking like it's already happened. I have made you. I mean, if God says it's going to be, it's going to be. If God says something like, if Jesus says, you will be my disciples and you will go and bear fruit. It's, you, count on it. You're going to go and bear fruit. If he says, I'm going to call you by name and you're my sheep, you belong to me. That settles it. If you're a sheep, he calls your, voice, your name, you're going to hear his voice, you're going to respond. That's the way it's going to be. That's how the word of God works. I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Verse 6 sounds a lot like Genesis 128 again. We just saw it in verse 2. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations. And then at the end of verse 6, you get just a little glimmer of the coming king. He says, and kings shall come from you. Um, So the the ultimate king that's going to come from Abraham is Jesus. So already in Genesis 17, you're getting indication that from Abraham, you're going to get Isaac and then Jacob and then from Jacob, you're going to get Judah and then Judah, David, and then from David, Jesus. That's how the line, that's where that's going. Kings will come from you. But if you step back and you think more broadly... Over in Genesis 25, as as we saw last week, we have in in Genesis 25 verse 12, these are the generations of Ishmael. And Ishmael gives birth to these, these 12 princes down in verse 16. 12 princes according to their tribes. And so you've got kings from Ishmael's line that are going to arise. And then later in Genesis, over in chapter 36... In verses 9 and following, you're going to read of these chiefs from the line of Edom, that is Esau. So it goes, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob has a twin brother, Esau, and Esau is going to give birth, give give rise to this line of kings. So kings are going to come from Abram. The one that matters is Jesus, but all these other kings and all these other nations, the Ishmaelites, the the Edomites, and so forth, they also come from, from Abraham. The word of the Lord proves true. Kings shall come from you, verse 7, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. So the Lord is saying to Abraham, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to establish my covenant with you and your seed, your descendants, and I'm going to be your God. Now, hear what's there. What's there is a promise of seed reiterated, right? It's in the word offspring. And what's there is blessing, right? I'm going to be your God. I'm going to do all of this for you. And now here comes the promise of land. Verse 8, And I will give to you and to your offspring after you, the land of your sojournings. All the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be there, God. Impossible promises. This man can't have children. The Canaanites inhabit the land, and the Lord says, this is what I'm going to do. So in verses 4 through 8, God makes these amazing promises to Abraham. Don't miss the logical connection between God's presence, God's overwhelming, awe-inspiring, worship-inducing presence and God's promises, God's powerful, creative, causing-to-happen words that we call promises, and now the demand. Here's the logical connection. If Abraham doesn't believe the God who has appeared to him, it's going to be because he doesn't trust God. Right? There's, a, there's an intrinsic connection between I believe what I'm seeing and I trust the one talking to me. If Abraham doesn't obey the demand, God's going to make demands upon Abraham. One shocking, amazing, surprising, radical demand is going to be made on Abraham in the verses that follow. If Abraham doesn't obey the demand... It's going to be because he doesn't think God is worth obeying. He doesn't doesn't think God is deserving of his obedience. If If I can draw you onto my lap as my beloved children, if we don't trust God, we don't believe what we're seeing. If we don't obey God, it's because we, we don't think he deserves our obedience. And if those are not the reasons, then what we need to do is repent. And we, and we just need to keep on repenting because we're just going to keep on failing. That's what sinners do. That's what sinners are. We're going to be repenting until either Christ returns and glorifies us or we die. That's how long the repentance is going to need to go. We will never outgrow the need For repentance. So God reveals himself. God makes promises. Now look at the demand here in verse 9. God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant. That's a demand. You shall do this. You and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And maybe you've seen Hamilton, and uh, we get to that moment in the musical when Washington tells Hamilton that he's resigning, and Hamilton says, I'm sorry, what? You shall be circumcised. Uh, I shall be what? What do you want me to do? You want me to, you want me to cut something off from there? That's not how Abraham responds, is it? God says, "This is what I want you to do," and Abraham is like, "Okay, whatever you say, whatever you say." And and we should not miss the connection. That we should not miss the fact that this is a this is a a surprising, shocking, radical demand that Abraham do this, and it pertains directly to the promise. This guy is 99 years old. He's going to live for a number of years yet, but 99-year-old men don't heal all that fast. I mean, you know, young people heal quickly, right? But as you get older, your body breaks down, and, and wounds take longer to heal. And I think there's reason to think, um, if I do that, is our offspring going to be possible after that? I mean, there's, uh, this is going to require faith. This is going to require a response of whatever you say, however you want, whenever. That's the kind of response Abraham comes back with. And the only thing that enables that kind of response is, Abraham, here I am. This is who I am. I am God Almighty. Here's what I'm offering to you. Here are my promises to you. And in response to the reality of who God is, and all that God promises, Abraham is like, where's the knife? Where's the knife? And it, But it's not just him. Look at the end of verse 10. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And if, you know, if, if I'm hearing this, I might be thinking, okay, God, I'm seeing you. You're making these promises to me. But now what you're telling me is that I have to go persuade all these other males that they need to undergo this as well? This is going to take some doing. This is going to take some explaining. What exactly are you proposing, Abraham? And we know he's got at least 318 trained men born in his house. These these guys were bold enough in Genesis 14, daring enough to go ambush those kings from Mesopotamia. These guys are not pushovers. These are not potted plants. These are, these are men with brains, and they're going to need... They're gonna need some, what exactly are you saying you're going to impose upon us here? And he's gonna do it. And then and then also he's got this son named Ishmael, whom he's been told in the previous chapter he's gonna be a wild donkey of a man. That doesn't mean he's going to be submissive and receptive of instructions and of you know commands and exhortations from his father. I mean, we're not told what had to happen, but they might have had to restrain some of these people to make this happen. I don't know. But Abraham is to to be circumcised, and every male among him shall be circumcised. Verse 11, you shall be circumcised, it's very specific, in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. We'll come back to this idea of the sign of the covenant when we talk about baptism here in a minute. Verse 12, he who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Okay, so it's to be instituted now. When a, when a male child is born, he gets to be eight days old, circumcision happens. Every male, into verse 12, throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he, is, he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Now, I want to stop here and just think about this for just a moment. And, and, I, and I want to observe, we, I don't know how that society worked. I don't know what bought with your money looked like. I don't know what the obligations looked like. But this I know. They get included in the covenant. They get included in the covenant with Abraham. That's something. These people who are who've been bought with money by Abraham, these people who have been born in his household, but maybe the sons of these 318 warriors, I don't know who they are. But they're to be included in the covenant. Verse 13. Uh, Both he who is born in your house and he was bought with your money shall surely be circumcised, so shall my covenant be in your flesh. An everlasting covenant. Okay, so, so there's this radical demand that Abraham be circumcised. And then look at the warning that comes in verse 14. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. I'm going to offer to you a thought that um, comes from a different passage later in the book of Exodus. You remember that episode in Exodus when Moses is going back into Egypt and the angel of the Lord meets him to put him to death and Zipporah circumcises the sons and, and then you know, she throws their foreskins at, at Moses' feet and says, Now you've become a brideg- bridegroom of blood to me. Here's, here's what I think is going on there. I think that Moses... He's, he is about to enact the deliverance of Israel in fulfillment of the, of, of the outworking of the covenant with Abraham, but he hasn't brought his own sons into the covenant. And so Genesis 17, 14 is about to be applied to him, and Zipporah saves the day and, and applies the terms of the covenant with Abraham to these sons of Moses, and and thereby makes it so that the covenant of Abraham will be worked out through Moses leading the people out of, of Egypt. So we get, we get uh, this introduction where God reveals himself in verses 1 through 3. Verses 4 through 8, we get these promises. Verses 9 through 14, this is the center of the passage, circumcision. And now we go back to promises in verses 15 through 21. And, and these promises these promises pertain to Sarah and their they're surprising, I think. Verse 15 God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. This is like a direct re- repudiation of what they had done with Hagar. You know, Sarah says, uh, God hasn't given me any seed, go into Hagar. And now God is saying, Nope, not going to go that way. I am going to bless Sarah. And this is remarkable because it's so, it's so it's so uncommon in Genesis. Usually, the people that get blessed are like the males. And they're usually the firstborn male, right? So God makes the man and the woman, and God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, Genesis 1:28. And then Abraham blesses Isaac. And Isaac, he thinks he's blessing Esau, the older son, but He's been deceived by the younger son, Jacob, but he's trying to bless the older son. And then uh, Jacob uh, is trying, well, Joseph wants Jacob to bless his older son, and Jacob does the thing where he switches his arms, you know, it surprises, he blesses the younger son, but, but you get the point. Usually, it's a, it's a son that's being blessed in the book of Genesis, but here, Sarah, God says, I will bless her. So we've got a promise of land, and we've got a promise of seed, and now here we've got the blessing. But the blessing is specifically articulated over Sarah. I will bless her and moreover, I will give you a son by her. Impossible promise. Sarah's barren. She's 90 years old. Abram is 99 and he just cut himself. I'm going to give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. This is just like verse 6. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. So, So the king is going to come specifically through Abraham and Sarah. And Abram responds in, I think, both worship and a measure of incredulity. Probably mixed with astonished joy. I think there's probably a whole host of emotions that Abraham is feeling. When we read in verse 17, Abraham fell on his face and laughed. He's not mocking God. You you can't experience God and mock Him. I think there's probably some incredulity in the laughter. Like, what? Can you believe this? And then there's probably also this, this relieved and amazed joyful reception of the promise. Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And then it's like, it's like Abraham... I mean, I, look, I, I don't... We need to be careful. We need to be careful in how we respond to people and things and opportunities. We need to be careful that we don't start reasoning like Abraham starts reasoning here. Because he starts reasoning, can the promise of God actually happen? And then he starts proposing the alternative. Oh God, I really don't expect your word to come to pass. Couldn't you just count this instead? Couldn't you just take my effort instead of the miracle? Couldn't you just take our sinful attempt to bring about the promise instead of your creative word doing the work? Verse 18, Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Can't you just take Ishmael, Lord? This thing that you're promising sounds really impossible. Couldn't couldn't Ishmael serve the purpose? God said no. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name, and they translate it Isaac, but if we were to bring it into English, we could could say his name is, he laughs. You know, put put he and laughs together as one word, and that's Isaac's name. He laughs. That's what you're going to call his name. You laughed when I told you what was going to happen? You name that boy, he laughs. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. So God is very specific. The blessing, the covenant comes through Isaac. Look at the next verse, verse 20. There's a wordplay here because Ishmael's name, as we talked about last week, means God hears. Yishma, he hears. El, God, God hears. So God says, "As for Ishmael. I hear you, I have heard you, right? There's a wordplay on hears there. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him. Now this is a blessing that comes as a function of the fact that Ishmael descends from Abraham. That's why Ishmael gets blessed. And God says, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him. It's, It's like an outworking of Genesis 128, but it's a common grace outworking. It's a, it's a common grace as a result of connection to Abraham, outworking. It's not a saving grace, outworking. And the reason I say that, look at, look at what it goes on to say. He shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. Verse 21, but I will establish my covenant with laughs with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. So... Okay, Abraham, I hear you. I'm going to bless Ishmael. I'll make him fruitful and multiply him. I'll make him like a new Adam. But he doesn't get the covenant. This child that I've promised to you via Sarah, the covenant's going to be established with him. This is very important for our considerations about baptism that we're working toward because Ishmael got circumcised. That's interesting, isn't it? Ishmael got circumcised. There's a sense in which... As a son of Abraham, Ishmael participates in the covenant. There's another sense in which the covenant is not with Ishmael. It's with Isaac. It's very important. We'll come back to it. Verse 22. This is our last section. And here we see Abraham's radical obedience. Whatever you say, however you want it done, whenever you give the command that's what i'm going to do that's abraham's heart verse 22 when god had finished talking with when he had finished talking with him god went up from abraham then abraham took ishmael his son and all those born in his house or bought with his money every male among all the men of abraham's household everybody had been told to circumcise and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day that was a feat because he's got at least 318 trained men, born in his household. Probably, everyone else, as we talked about when we talked about Genesis 14, probably if those guys are all born in his household and Abraham's not their father, they've all got fathers. Or, you know, and I don't know how many there were, but we're talking 500, 1,000 people, and they all get circumcised the very day the word comes. Abraham must have been persuasive. They do it right away. There's no delay, no hesitation. There's no let's have a meeting and discuss this and then we'll come back next week and reconsider it again together. And I'm no, that very day. God said it, that settles it. We do it. He circumcised the flesh of their foreskins at the end of verse 23. That very day, as God had said to him. Verse 24, Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, it's repeated, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. They're included in the covenant. Now, let's think together about baptism And circumcision, and the reason we want to do this is because there are Christians who say uh, they circumcised babies in the old covenant, so we should baptize babies now that we don't do circum now that in the new now that circumcision sign of the old covenant, baptism sign of the new covenant, circumcised babies, baptized babies. That's what they say. Well, I've already indicated to you that I think there's a difference between the old covenant and the new covenant, and we see the difference with Ishmael. Because in a way, Ishmael is included in the Abrahamic covenant, and yet he's, not in, he's a son of Abraham, but, he, but the covenant is not established with him. And Paul makes this clear in uh, Romans 9 when he says, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And the implication is Isaac and not Ishmael. So in one way, well, that's the way it is in the Old Covenant. In the New Covenant, it's not that way. In the New Covenant... You don't baptize the babies. No, in the new covenant, Jesus says very clearly to his disciples in in Matthew 28, 19, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. And the them refers back to the disciples. And then all through the book of Acts, I mean, the very first Christian sermon on the day of Pentecost, they say to Peter, how are we supposed to respond to this? And Peter says, repent and be baptized. And if you don't repent, you don't get baptized. If you don't become a disciple, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, you're not to be baptized. And there is nothing in the New Testament about baptizing those who repent and believe and also their infant children. There is zero that indicates that that's what should be done. And there's there's also Jeremiah 31 where um, God says, days are coming when I'm going to make a new covenant, not like the old one that I made with them at Mount Sinai. And then he says, in this new covenant, they will all know me. Everybody in the covenant knows God. And if you don't know God, you're not in the covenant. And if you don't know God and you're not in the covenant, you got no business being baptized. Because as we read in Galatians 3, I would invite you to turn back to the passage that Chris Birch read earlier. And I just want to draw your attention to some glorious truth in this passage. Look at Galatians three sixteen. The promises were made to Abraham and to his seed. It does not say and to seeds, plural, referring to many. And we could say referring to both Isaac and Ishmael. But referring to one. The promises were made to Abraham and to his seed, his offspring, singular. And then Paul explains who is Christ. The promises are made to Christ. And then drop your eyes down to verse 29. If you are Christ's, then you're Abraham's seed, you're Abraham's offspring. How does that work? Paul is assuming the concept, I think, of union with Christ by faith. And and just look back at verse 26. In Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, union with Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. You believe in Jesus, you're in Jesus, you're united to Jesus. Jesus. Verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Well, how does that work? Through faith. If you don't have faith, you're not in Christ. If you don't have faith, you're not united to Christ. If you don't have faith, you're not Christ's, and you're not Abraham's seed. So the only people who are Christ's seed of Abraham are the people that believe in Jesus. And then united to him by faith, that is symbolized in their baptism. That's the the logic of the New Testament. There's a lot more that we could say about that, but I want to go to how this applies to us today with respect to how we think about God saying to Abraham, walk before me and be blameless, and then be circumcised. How, how, how How do we apply this to our own lives today? Well, I think that our hearts should be, we should say to the New Testament, whatever you want to tell me to do however you want to tell me to do it whenever you would have me do it i'm ready if we experience god like that if we if we behold the living god revealed to us in the word if we hear these promises these promises about seed and land this is ultimately pointing to the coming of the lord jesus And it's pointing to the new heaven and new earth, the resurrection land that he's going to bring about. That's what it's pointing to. And if we hear the promises that we can be in on that, then our hearts should be whatever you would call me to do. So that I can have that. However you want me to do it. In whatever way. And I just want to put some things before you that the New Testament calls you to. One of them is Acts 2.32. Repent. Repent. And be baptized. If you're here this morning and you're not explicitly following Jesus, you've never come to a place in your life where you, you've, you recognize He is Lord and I'm going to live like it. And He's the Savior. And I'm going to receive Him as mine, as my Savior. You need to repent of your unbelief. And you need to follow Him. You need to trust Him. And you need to obey Him and be baptized. You need to repent and be baptized. And then let me just read to you some things. Luke 9, verses 23 through 26. This is what Jesus says to us. Jesus makes demands that are as radical on us as God saying to Abraham, You go get yourself circumcised. And you circumcise your son and you circumcise all the males in your house. Whether they were born there or you bought them or whatever, all of them are to be. The, the, listen to Luke 9, 23 through 26. He said to all, if anyone would covet come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is so audacious that he's ready to say that to anybody that would come after him, you need to understand what it's going to look like. To come. You're going to need to be crucified. That's what it's going to be. Following me means you being willing to be crucified every day. For whoever would save his life, you try to avoid crucifixion, will lose it. But whoever loses his life, for my sake, will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him, will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And on that day, you will wish that you had not been ashamed of the carpenter from Nazareth who got himself crucified. The demands, the demands are significant. They're severe. They're serious. I'm just going to read you some more of them. Ephesians 4, listen to verses 29 and following. The only way you're going to obey obey this command is if you see the living God. You see the living God. You worship the living God. You hear the promises of the living God. And you feel in yourself, I want that. I want what He's promising. And I want to obey Him. Ephesians 4.29 Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. And there's no parenthetical statement that says, unless you need to be authentic. Unless you need to be real. Unless... You want to see if other people feel the way that you do. There's no qualifier unless you're on social media, unless you're just reporting what somebody else said. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Unqualified, no footnotes, no throat clearing. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion so before you let those words out of your lips you need to ask yourself is this going to build this person up and if the answer is no then you need to shut it if it doesn't build up don't say it that it may give grace to those who hear if it doesn't give grace don't say it And and You just have to ask yourself, is he worthy of worship? Are the promises worth it? And do I believe him? Do I trust him? Is he worth my obedience? Uh, Look down at verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. How are you going to do that? The only way you're going to do that is if you go to this one and you say to him, Lord, you know my concerns and I'm just going to let them rest with you. I'm going to bring them to you and I'm going to believe that you're the one who said, it's mine to avenge, I will repay. I'm going to believe that you're the one who who has said things like, I'm not going to be mocked. God is not mocked. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. What a man seeps, that... What a man seeps. What a man uh, sows that he will also reaps. You see how those got run together, seeps? What a man sows, that he will also reap. You're the one that says that, Lord. I'm just going to entrust this to you. And and I want you to take away from me the bitterness, and I want you to take away from me the slander. Verse 32, be kind to one another, because he's with you, because you're living before him because of the promises that he's made be kind to one another tender hearted forgiving one another as god in christ forgave you there's so much more that i would like to take you through so many more new testament commands that i would love to take you through so many but i think probably this is a good i'm tempted let me just take you to one more thing, okay? Let me invite you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. And, I, and I, I just want you to see what Paul says to Timothy and how he exhorts Timothy. I'm going to start reading in 2 Timothy 2, verse 22 and following. Paul says to Timothy, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Verse 23, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And I just want to, I want to invite you to think about how there's a, there's a combined instruction not to be quarrelsome in verse 24 and correcting opponents in verse 25. And that's a balance. Because sometimes if you set out to correct opponents, people are going to think that you've been quarrelsome. And so how do you thread that needle? Well, I think you have to, you have to it, it, it involves, among other things, some of the things it involves, are recognizing when you need to answer not a fool according to his folly. And you need to recognize, this is not a persuadable person. And so I'm just not going to speak in this circumstance. There are going to be other circumstances where you need to correct the opponent, and you can pursue doing so with gentleness, and we're all going to make mistakes. This is why James says in James 3.1, not many of you should become teachers. You're going to be judged more strictly. We all, we all stumble in many ways. If anyone never sins with his mouth, he's a perfect man. And we could get it wrong. We could get it wrong. But we're trying to thread this needle of saying, I don't want to get involved in foolish, ignorant controversies. I won't be quarrelsome, but I do need to correct opponents with gentleness. And there are other instructions that I could point you to. Since we're here, I would just invite you to drop your eyes to chapter 4, verse 1, where Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, reprove, reprove. Some people are going to take that as quarrelsome, but there it is. Reprove, rebuke. And that's a fitting word to conclude because I want to remind you that we're praying toward the first two weeks of August. We're praying that the word of God would make the presence of God real to people in our circles of influence. And we're hoping that we'll be able to invite these people to our homes and share the gospel with them and see them come to know this living God who's made these astonishing promises about the salvation of God of the world. And then we want to see these people. Look, if somebody experiences God, if they come to know God, the commands of the New Testament, they're going to be like, hey, make it harder. Make it harder. I mean, if people have been born again and the New Testament says, wives, submit to your husband, people are going to be like, sure, absolutely. Yeah, that's what I want. Jesus says, come take up your cross and follow me. Believers are going to say, yes, give me the cross beam. Let's go. That's how believers are going to respond. That's how we want to respond to the New Testament. That's how we want to see other people respond to the call of Christ. So let's pray together and let's invite people to our homes, to our backyards. This is great news that we've got. Let's pray. Father, you are so good. We praise you for the way that you revealed yourself to Abraham. We praise you for these precious and very great promises that you made to him. We praise you for his example of obedience. And we praise you, Lord, for giving us the opportunity to respond to these sometimes radical, shocking demands that you make. And we pray, Lord, that your grace would enable us to do this. That we would be people who walk before you and have integrity. People who walk before you and live blamelessly. Lord, we pray that you would do it by the power of your word. We pray that your word would transform our recalcitrant, stubborn, hard hearts into hearts that are humble and submissive and eager to receive the teaching of your word. We pray, Lord, that you would transform us and make it where, though our ears used to love to hear gossip, and though our mouths used to love to speak slander, You have so transformed us that we want to speak grace. We want to build up. Lord, we love you. We pray that you'd give us wisdom for avoiding quarrelsome behavior and at the same time correcting opponents. We pray that you'd make us gentle. And we thank you that you are a loving Father. We praise you for your work in Abraham's life. We pray that you would... Keep doing your work in our lives. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.